Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Dr. Howard Henderson is the founding director of the Center for Justice Research and professor of justice administration in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University in Houston. He's also the chair of the Houston Racial-Ethnic Disparities Committee Data Workgroup, a MacArthur Foundation-funded organization charged with identifying, addressing, and improving racial and ethnic disparities across the criminal justice system. The MTSU alumnus spoke about criminal justice reform in Tennessee as part of the MTSU Distinguished Lecture Series, October 31st. There's a lot to delve into, and we'll do so right after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Beverly Keel, chair of MTSU's top-ranked Department of Recording Industry, will take the reins of the university's College of Media and Entertainment as its new dean. Keel, a six-time honoree in the Nashville Business Journal's Women in Music City Awards and a member of its Hall of Fame, will begin her new role January 1. Keel, who received her bachelor's degree from MTSU in 1988, joined the recording industry faculty in 95 and was named chair of the department in 2013. She succeeds former USA Today editor-in-chief Ken Paulson, who returned to the faculty earlier this year to serve as director of MTSU's newly created Free Speech Center. And officials with the MTSU Campus Pharmacy, assisted by students from the Lipscomb University College of Pharmacy and University of Tennessee Memphis Health Science Center, collected more than 83 pounds of unwanted drugs dropped off by the public October 24th. The MTSU Pharmacy and University Police Department collected more than 39 pounds of prescription medications, 39 pounds of over-the-counter drugs, and 4.4 pounds of controlled substances during the second of two semi-annual events, which coincide with National Prescription Drug Take-Back Days held every spring and fall. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Henderson, thank you for coming back to campus, and thank you for being with us here on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity to come home and have a conversation about a topic that's near and dear, but also my vocation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being able to start out my academic career learning about criminal justice at Middle Tennessee State University, it's a great opportunity to come back and have a conversation about how justice reform is changing the national narrative and allowing a lot of people who shouldn't be incarcerated to make a difference and come back out in the community. You live in and you've spent a considerable amount of time in Texas. What do you know about the criminal justice system in Tennessee today as opposed to when you were here as a college student? Well, a a lot has changed, uh, and a lot of that has changed because the national narrative has changed. Uh, Tennessee has become a great place for people to move and raise their families. And so it's still that. And so what has happened is the incarceration rate has tended to follow the national trend. Uh, The focus has been to deal with individuals on pretrial services, but also deal with individuals on probation and parole. And so you're moving individuals out of the state prison system and you're putting them back out into local communities. And that's happening all around the country. And Tennessee is no different. Can you tell us anything about the similarities and differences in the Texas and Tennessee justice systems? Well, number one, size. You you have a system where uh, Texas incarcerated about 140,000 individuals. All right. 
Tennessee is almost half of that. And so you're dealing with a manpower issue that Tennessee doesn't necessarily have. But you also have an opportunity to actually deal with individuals on a one-on-one basis. So it's a lot easier to deal with community-based rehabilitation because you don't have the numbers that you may have in Texas. And so the opportunity is ripe. Uh, the access is, 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 is there. And I think that you have a community and a state that recognizes that incarceration is not the answer and community treatment is, is the way to go forward. Mm-hmm. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee says he is not considering severing relations with Core Civic. Uh, this used to be called CCC, I think. Uh, it's a private concern that runs four prisons in the state. What are your feelings about corporate-owned and operated prisons? Well, uh, you know, corporate prisons have been a challenge for a long time. Even when I was a student, uh, we had faculty members who uh, were adamant against uh, the use of private corporations to run prisons. And so I, I think that you have to judge them on an individual basis. The challenge is that they don't want to provide access to the data about what they're doing and how they're doing it. I'm not so opposed to it, but what I am opposed to is the fact that they're not open and honest about their day-to-day interactions. It seems to be a part of the mentality of the the particular public servant who believes that outsourcing solves a great deal of governmental ills. But it it uh, it puzzles me as to how having a profit motive in the prison system serves the general public as a whole. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's uh, counterintuitive, right? And 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 so uh, to 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 be able to to make money off of justice. Is problematic. And, and so the questions are naturally arising because you, we don't understand how you can make money and we don't believe that you should. And so a lot of it is because they are not transparent. I think if you are able to compare publicly run versus privately run prisons, so you'll see a lot of similarities. And the questions that we have of private prisons, we probably also have of publicly run agencies and facilities. Other vendors who have contracts with the states would have to be transparent, would they not? I think they they would be. The problem is no one's requiring these private prisons to be held accountable to the same level that we do for publicly funded facilities. Yeah. Uh, This is more of a personal question, I guess, than a question posed to you as an academic. As an African-American man, have you personally had any unpleasant encounters with law enforcement? Because this is a major topic these days. You know, it is. I I think if if you look back over your life, uh, in retrospect, I think you do have some experiences that you feel were unfair experiences. Um, But a lot of that is based upon a lot of perception. Uh, It may be misperception. It may be misunderstanding. But I can personally tell you that I have had negative encounters with individuals in the system. And I was a member who actually worked in the system. So it's not as someone who's an outsider. But again, you can't let that dictate how you judge everyone that works in the system, because I do honestly believe that a majority of the individuals who work in the criminal justice system are good, hardworking people. It's the few, the few rotten apples that d- destroys the bunch. And I think we haven't learned how to deal with those few rotten apples. And obviously you can't let it uh, affect your work as an academic because your credibility depends upon uh, the search for truth and both right. qualitative and quantitative process. That's, that's so true. I think that 
the, your experiences also guides the area of research that you choose to go into. Mm-hmm. And you try to go into it as objectively as you can, and you allow the data to tell you what the results are, and you make inferences based upon what your findings are. And you would hope that the objective criteria and peer review would kind of keep you middle of the road in your understanding of the situation. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Howard Henderson, an MTSU alum who spoke here as part of the MTSU Distinguished Lecture Series, October 31st. He spoke about criminal justice reform in Tennessee. He is with Texas Southern University in Houston. You're leading a research team to evaluate the Houston Police Department body cam program. Uh, Several law enforcement officers in different jurisdictions have said that body cam video doesn't tell the whole story, even though it's supposed to be able to help exonerate an officer in the event of a false accusation as much as it is to show an officer who has overstepped his bounds. Is there any other research to date or are you sort of starting from scratch in this issue? Well, so essentially the the body camera movement is moving so fast. Um, a lot of departments adopted cameras because it was the name of the game at that time a couple of years ago. And what has happened is the body camera footage has been tied up in litigation. And so access to camera footage has been placed on a halt because obviously the footage is being used. Individuals are, are filing appeals. And so departments are not as willing to allow you access to that information. So a lot of that research has been frozen pending litigation for whatever data that, that may be available on those cameras. The, the challenge that they're having, though, is that they were adopted in mass. Uh, they weren't tested on particular departments. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, what are the results? Did they resu- reduce citizen complaints? Did they, did they improve uh, police accountability measures? The data on that is, is, is still unequivocal. And we, 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 we're still trying to figure out just exactly what the body cameras are doing because we naturally understand that when you're in front of a camera, you behave differently. Mm-hmm. But did that change the interaction? You have cases where police officers are turning the cameras off. The cameras are malfunctioning. But we still got to figure out if the camera in and of itself is actually making the difference or the objective that they intended to on the very beginning. Should the data from the cameras not be as available to the public as, say, the police blotter is, that anybody can just go down and, and look at it or have the the arrest, uh, arrest records published in the local daily newspaper the way that they are? Yeah, I think so. But you, you, you have some privacy concerns there. Right, because you have some cases that you don't want to have publicly available, a rape case, for example. Oh, yeah. 
right? Uh, there, so you got to have someone sift through this information and decipher what's available and what shouldn't be available. The other reality of it is, is that we have not dealt with the management of this data, mm-hmm. right? A lot of police departments don't have the bandwidth to house this information, so they're outsourcing it to third-party vendors just to house information, which has a dollar amount attached to it. So I don't think we realize the fiscal responsibility that the implementation of these cameras would, would place on police departments. We got to somehow figure out what is what are we going to do when we find out the cameras either didn't or did work, and how do we move forward? Because a day will come where the question will be, can we afford the cameras? And you've got to worry about, since it's digital technology, you have to worry about it being hacked by bad actors because uh, there are people with motivations to do so. And Mm -hmm. if you can hack into the American electoral system, you can hack into somebody's (laughs) camera database. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. You were talking about earlier with regard to your topic of criminal justice reform in uh, Tennessee, uh, the tendency to go away from mass incarceration and maybe more toward parole and probation. Does this mean a shifting of budgetary resources to probation and parole? Because you're going to need more probation and parole officers if we go and gravitate in that direction. Yeah, well, well, here's the deal. Probation and parole are fundamentally cheaper than incarceration, okay? And you're going to need to beef up or ramp up uh, the resources that you surround these agencies with. But you're also going to need other measures. You need employment measures. You need health measures. Criminal justice reform is more than just a criminal justice system. You have to build an ecosystem of support around individuals who are getting out and going back into these communities that extend beyond what we traditionally felt to be a space only for criminal justice. So it's not just a matter with the probation and parole officers of making sure that they obey the the rules for convicted felons about not having a gun and so forth and so on, but rather to uh, be sort of quasi-social workers in helping them reintroduce themselves into society outside the walls. No, that's that's exactly what it is. And, and so it, it's a it's a paradigm shift. And so we we're moving from this 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 position of social control uh, to, to to rehabilitation and, and reformation. Right. And so that it requires an entirely different level of training. Uh, it requires the police department to fundamentally shift the way in which they operate in these spaces. It requires judges to fundamentally shift the way in which they judge in these spaces. It requires every decision maker, or decision point in our system to change. But it also requires the community to understand that when these individuals are in your community, you no longer can paint them with the brush of the scarlet letter of mass incarceration and say that you are a form of felon. We have to change the way in which we refer to these individuals. But all in all, we have to totally redefine what we see as criminal justice. And that takes time because where we are, it took a long time to get there. And it's going to take a very long time to actually transform the way in which we operate in this in this space. Do you think that uh, continuing the sex offender registry, however, is appropriate and making it public? You know, I, I think that part of uh, the registry is to keep individuals in, informed. And so the sex offender registry, I'm not sure whether or not I agree with it or not. I think it's it serves an important function. I think that a parent has a right to know if their kid is in an environment that may be dangerous. Um, I think there's some ways in which we can 
begin to isolate and identify uh, the seriousness of sex offense. Because I think if you look at the registry now, you got everybody on there. Uh, but all sex offenders are not equal. I think there are some that are more dangerous than others. And I think we need to be able to look at the registry of those individuals based upon their likelihood of, of, of reoffending. We'll take another break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Howard Henderson, founding director of the Center for Justice Research and professor of justice administration in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University in Houston. He's also an MTSU alumnus who spoke about criminal justice reform in Tennessee here October 31st. What are you learning so far from your activities with the racial ethnic disparities uh, work group that you're involved with in Texas? Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I learned is that there are a lot of people who work in the system who want to see change. Um, but I think it's like trying to turn around uh, a ship in the middle of the ocean. It's going to take time. It's going to take training. Uh, it's going to take funding. It's going to take a fundamental understanding that we have to be on the same page. And right now, inside the system, they don't all agree. And so what I have learned is you have to identify who your allies are and you have to be able to compromise so that you, at the end of the day, you help reduce mass incarceration. But you also identify those folks that you think are best served with incarceration, because I think incarceration is good for a certain segment of, 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 of the offender population. But for all those other individuals who be best served in the community, but also how do we reduce the processing of individuals unnecessarily through our system. There are some people who just fundamentally don't need to be in the system. We can deal with them other ways. And so what I've learned by working with this group is that at the end of the day, if we don't get the individual decision makers in the system to change their thought process and the way they think about things fundamentally, then no matter what we believe on the outside, there will be no changes. How do you do that uh, with regard to the decision makers and getting them to turn their mentality around when they have, in many cases, constituents who are hollering for tougher crackdowns on people who commit crimes of all stripes. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you help them to, to deal with that kind of political pressure? Uh, how do you turn the uh, mentality of the American populace around to appreciate what you're saying? Well, you know, first and foremost, we need a marketing campaign, right? You, you, you have to educate uh, individuals in a society about what the research says, right? And so in, instead of people making decisions based upon emotions, we're guided by the data. But what we do 
at the Center for Justice Research is we spend a lot of time dealing with policymakers, legislators, uh, key decision makers in the system, the district attorney, uh, commissioners. You do a lot of time with the police chief, but you also deal with key community leaders and stakeholders. And you say, okay, what are the issues that you guys are dealing with right now? And here's what the research says about the issues that you're dealing with. But here are some best practices that are based upon evidence. And so if you guys are going to make decisions about criminal justice-related issues, Here's what we see as the best approaches, and here's some examples of that. If we could educate people on the best way to go, they tend to move in that direction. Uh, something I have always wondered, uh, not just from Ferguson and all the other incidents on, but even before Ferguson, is aren't the psychological evaluations that police undergo when they're going through the academy uh, and uh, applying to become police officers supposed to weed out? people who have this cognitive dissonance in their heads about dealing with people of color. And should that be improved? Number one, uh, well, your first question, yes, they're supposed to be, right? And But we see there's something happening where they're not catching these individuals, right? The other piece is that, yes, we do need improvement of those instruments. But a point I want to make is that I think that we tend to look at police training as a static point in time that they receive prior to taking the job. I think we have to extend that review process to a number of years and then go back and look to say, hey, listen, we know you went through training well, but we want to see how you operated in a five-year span of time. We got to increase that because I think what's happening is individuals are able to make it through the training in the first six months, they're able to make it on the job, go through their training period. But then you look back in five or 10 years and you see these behaviors manifest themselves. And so we got to be able to, to course correct ourselves in real time. And that means academics have to do more longitudinal studies in this area, right? right? We have to do more longitudinal studies, but we also have to be able to look at behavior on a continuum, not on a, a, a binary measure of good or bad or right or wrong. A snapshot doesn't tell you the whole story. A snapshot doesn't tell you. you got to look at this over a number of years. And if you do that, I think you'll identify who these bad actors are. But you also identify those that need more training. I think we have to improve our training modalities. But I also think we have to be able to strategically align our needs with policy and law and be able to move that distinction between those three much faster than we do now. There are people, in other words, who have firm ideologies that don't serve the criminal justice system well. And then there are people who would say to you, I wouldn't have done it if I had to do it over again, if I had known better. Right. I, I think that, you know, again, we we, we got here through a history of uh, oppressive experiences in the criminal justice system. And I think what we're learning now and what some of us have known for a long time is that you have to educate people on the best way to go because the criminal justice system can't be used as a mechanism of social control. Yeah. How can law enforcement deal with the issue of the lone wolf, quote unquote, who doesn't have any previous record and isn't particularly affiliated with any group? I think that we have to do a better job of identifying outlier characteristics and, and, and being able to create a profile but also, I think that we are disconnected from our educational system who oftentimes have identified people with issues long before the police have. 
But how do you do that while at the same time protecting individuals' constitutional rights? And so I think that we got to be able to do that in these extreme cases. And it doesn't mean that when the criminal justice system encounters someone that they go to jail. It just means that we create a system where we identify individuals that we say have a great or likelihood or propensity of being a certain way. We got to be able to do that, but at the same time, not use incarceration, not use jail, not use punishment as our systematic response to those individuals initially. You earned your bachelor's degree in criminal justice administration here at MTSU. How would you say your undergraduate education here prepared you for your future career? I think it was a great foundation. I think uh, I had an opportunity to uh, be exposed to criminal justice on an international scale. And so I was able to go to different universities in different places around the country and the world and be able to talk criminal justice. And I knew exactly what I was talking about because I had been prepared over a number of years. While I was here, we had to minor in two areas. I chose psychology and sociology, which I felt uh, worked well with, with criminal justice administration. But we had some of the best faculty that you would have around the world. But I think one of their great contributions is that most of their faculty have practical experience. And so while we were learning these academic areas, the faculty also had real world experience. And so they were able to tie in examples that you would eventually see one day, but they were able to, you were able to grab something and understand that this is more than theory, but that this theory has application and it's real. And there are people who have consequences for the decisions that you make in the system. It used to be decades ago that all you had to do to be a cop was to be a great big dude who could break up a bar fight between two knuckleheads and a honky tonk. (laughs) It's much more sophisticated than that these days. Is the attitude within the law enforcement community coming to accept that a college education is not just a bunch of theory and ivory tower stuff, but it's actually something that can help them be better at their jobs and do a better job protecting society? Yeah, I I think it depends on the level in which you're looking at. The federal government's gotten this from the very beginning, right? You've had college education requirements for an extremely long time in the federal government. You also the same thing at the state level. It's at the local level where you have seen this pushback to the educational requirements. We know that officers who have education are less likely to use force. We know there are a lot of factors that education helps improve in the criminal justice system. But there's always going to be an intellectual debate within a discipline. You're always going to have this struggle between the theorists and the practitioners, which is a healthy struggle because I think the best way for us to improve the system is to have a combination of both. Dr. Howard Henderson? Thank you for being our guest and coming here and speaking to us at MTSU and being on MTSU on the record. Listen, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to the continued great work this university is doing. Proud. We'll be right back. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There is no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. 
For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Social entrepreneur Matt Tenney came to campus recently to speak to Jones College of Business Management students about the importance of servant leadership. In a nutshell, Tenney told students that prioritizing people over profits is the winning formula for successful leaders. Here's Tenney. The key point that I want to make is that uh, it's actually much, much better, uh, not just for living a happy, fulfilling life, but it's much better for business if you if you prioritize the well-being of the people you work with ahead of short-term metrics like quarterly profits and um, you know expenses and, and those types of things. So. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.